If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 146, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And looking fresh from Blackpool. Oh yeah, you see, Dan wasn't there on the Saturday, so I had to do the uh, drinking for both of us. And if you don't know what we're on about, we're on about Play Expo, which was a a great winter gaming event in Blackpool. And my God, they had a lot of games there, didn't they? And speaking of winter, wasn't it cold? Oh, yes. The, <laughs> the wind was lashing down. But we have an absolutely amazing guest that we recorded live at the event. Now, we did, because, um, like you said, you were there all day on Saturday. I got a few people tweeting me going, well, where were you? I tried to find you, you know. I was only there, literally. This is pretty rock and roll. I had a flying visit. I was there for three hours. <laughs> so. Yeah, that was it. At, at the tail end, but you still managed to get two panels done in yep. that time. So Rocked pretty up, useful. Got there quarter to two Sunday afternoon, left at five o'clock. Yeah. Did bash that two panels. First one, I mean, it was worth me making the trip over. I've been to a wedding day before in Manchester. Um, I think the wedding, you remember I said to you, um, I probably won't be as over as you. Yeah. The wedding finished at four o'clock in the morning. That's when they closed the bar. <laughs> Bearing in mind, the clocks have gone back an hour. So yeah. that is technically 5 a.m. I think wow. we went to bed. Uh, then straight over to Blackpool next day for the event. Um, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, though. Nothing a coffee <laughs> didn't sort out. And it was worth a the journey there because we sat down with Jeff Minter. Oh, God, how long has it been since we've wanted to get Jeff on the show? You know, he's one of the amazing... He's, he's like the British games designer. Him and Matthew Smith and a few others are actually definitive for British gaming. And Jeff Minter definitely has a, a very... Strange uh, psychedelic vibe as well, doesn't he? <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, there's probably only a handful of British video games developers and coders who kind of fall in that category. Yeah. You know, have been around that long. Like you said, you Matthew Smith's in there, Oliver Twins, obviously, yeah. as well. And he's not compromised on his style. You know, that's yeah. the whole thing. So he's, he's kept doing the similar style, but uh, he's kept the gameplay good and he's got pre- precise controls in it. That's another thing about Jeff Minter's stuff. You know, when you're playing... Uh, Tempest, you've really got to spin around fast to get to the other side. But, I mean, we we first met Jeff probably about maybe two or three years ago at one of the shows. Since then, every time we see him, are you going to come on the podcast, Jeff? Oh, yeah, let's get it sorted, boys. We never seem to be able to work it out. So we sat him down for an hour on a panel at Play Expo in Blackpool, and we chatted about stuff like um, Revenge of the Mutant Camels, Attack of the Mutant Camels, um, the Koenix multi-system. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And you know what was really nice? It was we had Paul Jewelry from Retro Gamer, and he came along, and they had Twin Galaxies that kind of done an official Jeff Minter uh, plaque, and he'd also got a little set of trading cards and stuff with Jeff Minter on him. So he did a little presentation yeah. <laughs> at the beginning, and I was like, that's awesome. Yeah, because these are Walter Day's trading cards, aren't they? Yeah. Um, he does for the entire gaming industry. Uh, Jeff finally got presented with his at the show. Big round of applause of everyone as well. And he was talking a bit about his new project, the Minotaur Project too. But we also talked about stuff like the VLM and Tempest 2000, 3000, yeah. the new one, 4000, Polybius as well, which was a game that he brought out about two years ago. Um, I've got it on the PlayStation VR. And that is kind of a, a retro-inspired shooter 
where the name comes from, I mean, a lot of people are probably aware of it, an urban legend, Polybius. So we talk a bit about that. And That's like, just coming out on the PC, actually. He's just done a port for the uh, Oculus. Yeah. So maybe, you know, Polybius is going to be an even more higher resolution. <laughs> it, it is an amazing game. And Jeff Mincher, I mean, come on, we, we don't need to talk anymore about how great Jeff is. And we'll also talk a bit about his llama fetish, obviously. On the so interview. <laughs> He's coming up. We'll run that interview recorded live at Play Expo in Blackpool in around 15 minutes from now. And you know what I want to say about Play Expo? It was so good because we had panels from lots of other people. So we had Dreamcast Junkyard yeah. there. We are bringing Adam Carrillo over from America, and that was so good. I really loved that panel. That was one of the best. I recommend all the listeners listen to the Dream Pod because we're putting that panel on there. And also Digitizer as well, which was yeah. really funny. I think it was like an old... Uh, it's kind of like old British variety show. They had Kim Justice doing noises from video games at one point, <laughs> and that is hilarious. Yeah. So they did like a live show. At, I wasn't there on the Saturday. Yeah, they did like a live show, and they did kind of, uh, it's like Antiques Roadshow, so people yeah. would bring up their game. I think um, they told Alan Kirillik he comes from Cowboy Town at one right. point. And, uh, yeah, it all I bet got, he was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, it all got pretty wild. And uh, it was just hilarious, though. Really good. And if you look on Retro and Lim's channel yep. on YouTube, they're all available on video. So thanks to Retro and Lim for filming and thanks to everybody that came up for us. You know, sometimes it's a bit depressing in winter and sad and you go there and you see all these happy people and you're like, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, we, we pulled up because I came with the in-laws. So we've been that wedding day before, and like um, it's actually really funny because my mother-in-law, she said, you know, um, I said, can we go to Blackpool for the, you know the day after the wedding? She was like, well, what are we going there for? I said, oh, there's a video games expo thing that I do the hosting. Actually, rolled her eyes, like, oh, that's gonna be so boring. She got in there. You couldn't tear it off the arcade machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Five o'clock, I'm like, we need to go. She goes, what time's it open? Tell, have we got another hour? She was well, like, wasn't your father-in-law like? No one's going to beat my top score yeah. on Asteroids. Yeah. Phoenix, 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 it was. was Phoenix, it, yeah. His all-time favourite game. They played it and he said to me, I'm sure they set the uh, difficulty harder on that cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> but they had such a good time. That's the thing. I mean, families always enjoy these events, don't they? Well, it's that's like, the thing. You know, Everybody's got arcade muscle memory in there yeah. somewhere, haven't they? <laughs> and we've got more coming up next year. Of course, we're going to be um, Play Expo in Manchester. Oh, that's going to be huge, yeah. yeah. In May, tickets on sale for that now. Uh, we're going to Amiga Island as well in uh, February. So. Yeah, uh, January, that was. January, January yeah. yeah. And then um, what's got the Retro Computer Museum Christmas party coming up next month as well. Yeah, and I'm going to be going off to America and you maybe are. doing a few... Uh, uh, Ravi reports from America for you guys. Yeah, so you think the final couple of months of the year be nice and chilled out after summer, but no, far nope. from it. <laughs> Chaos. So, of course, we'll keep you up to date with all that and you can get tickets for all the events and find them in the show notes or on our website, theretrohour.com. And, of course, the only reason that we can bring you the Retro Hour podcast every week, quick reminder, you know, we do come out every single Friday. I was chatting to someone on Sunday. He goes, what's like the release schedule for your podcast? And what dates does it come out? And I'm like, well, every single Friday. Yeah. He's like, what, really? Every week? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, nearly 150 apps now. Yeah. So. <laughs> Third anniversary coming up in January. And the only reason that we've made it this far is, to be honest, thanks to you guys' support. We couldn't do it without you. And that can be in many ways. I mean, we've talked before, it, it could be like a, a five-star rating on your favorite podcast client to get us up the iTunes chart so more people see us on there. Or a post or, or a comment on YouTube or anything like yeah. that. A retweet or yeah. tag a friend on Facebook. Or you can help us out with the running of the show as well. I mean, the fact that it is coming up to the third birthday doesn't mean we're going to have a renewal cost for hosting and everything coming up in the next couple of months. So this would be well-timed. If you'd like to help us out with a little donation, everything we get, 100% goes back into the running of the podcast. And you can find a little link either via PayPal or a cryptocurrency, if that's your thing, you can find that right now. A little tip jar on the front page of theretrohour.com. And just for making a donation of any amount, 
you will find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, David McGarry. Henry Voss. Jacob. Thomas Albrecht. Who all made donations into the running of the show, and you can do the same at theretrohour.com. Now, before we bring you the legend that is Jeff Minter, the inside story on Llama Soft recorded live. Such a nice guy as well, isn't he? Oh yeah. It. So we're gonna bring you that in around 15 minutes from now. Before then, a bit of sad news from the world of traditional media. As it turns out, one of the longest running British gaming magazines is finally closing its doors. And this is crazy because the game magazines actually outlasted the show here. And this is a Games Master magazine. You may yeah. know of the Games Master show with Dominic Diamond and um, what's his name? Patrick Moore. That's it, Patrick legend. Moore. Yeah. Well, this magazine was founded in 1993 when the TV series was at its peak. And I remember seeing it in the shops back then. I've actually got, um, when my parents moved house about a year ago, I went back there, went through all my old mags that were still in the attic, you know, decided which ones I was going to keep and what I wasn't. And I found an early issue of Games Master Magnet at the top. It's like, you know, Super Nintendo, Amiga, Atari ST, SNES, you know, all the classic yeah. systems of the day. And I got a recent copy as well. Because it has still been on sale all these years later, and it covers modern day consoles now, and it's still got the same Games Master logo that used to be on the TV show. So, bearing in mind, it's been going since 1993, and the TV series it was based on ended 20 years ago. Last episode of Games Master was 1998. That's mad, and you know, like that period in magazines was awesome because it was like you know the traditional kind of thick ones that looked like newspapers were gone. But all the floppy disks and all the kind of free CDs on the front started coming in. And that was like your extra tempting thing to get all your demos and stuff. Well, it was, for me, the highlight of the year in terms of magazines was always the Christmas issues. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially like Amiga format when you used to get that. that always have like a really cool cover disc. I remember the year that they had um, Canon Soccer. Yeah. Do you remember that? That was yeah. Canon Fodder and Sensible Soccer together, like in one game. And that was such an amazing little crossover. Well, they're saying here, there's another magazine as well. And yep. these are both owned by Future Publishing, mm-hmm. who, who were the big kind of... They did Amiga format, didn't they? They did ST format. They did all of the... The format formats. magazines. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they also did Edge. So there's Games TM. And I don't really know much about uh, Games Trademark. It was like done in 2002 to rival Edge magazine. Yeah, well, this is by... Now, Edge wasn't originally done by Future. In fact, it turned out it was the other way around. So there's a company called Imagine Publishing. Yeah, I remember Imagine. Yeah. They used to do all the rival ones, didn't they? <laughs> well, Future acquired them. So now Future do own Edge magazine. But Games TM was essentially launched to be a rival to Edge um, back in 2002. And Edge was kind of like the cool computer arty kind of... Uh, well, exploring games, but uh, it was you know, too cool for school. It was, it was very stylish, wasn't it? I can never yeah. afford Edge. That's for all the posers. Yeah, I used to buy that. Yeah, um, but what, I mean, Future Publishing, like you said, very long-running company, and the fact that they've kept it on sale for so long, I think, is pretty impressive. It does mean now, though. I mean, you, you could walk into a newsagent like back in the mid '90s, and half the shelf would be like Future Publishing computer and gaming mags. Yeah, it's that many. Crazy, and they and- haven't got many now. Then. No, no, they haven't got many, you know. Uh, they're saying that the gaming magazines left at Future Publishing are Edge, uh, the official Xbox and PlayStation magazines, PC Gamer and Retro Gamer. Yeah, that's, that's it. it. So all those old ones have been squashed into, like, Retro Gamer. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Well, I mean, that just kind of makes sense, and I, I've never understood who's buying magazines about 
current modern day games and consoles? You know, I love these magazines being produced and everything, but I will admit myself, like, I used to get Amiga Future, which was one of the kind of handmade ones, yeah. but I look online and I see all the news already, yeah. and I'm just like, why do I want to reread that again in a different format? And, yeah, I think the internet is really... Also, e kind of books and magazines and stuff and uh, uh, news sites as well. You know, it's always nice to kind of sit on a tablet and go through it. I know it's sad to say, I want to keep the old mags <laughs> back, but I don't buy them myself. There is something, I mean, Ivan bought a copy of maybe the last issue of Games Master. I did get one maybe about two or three years ago. Um, I was never a regular purchaser of it, but I go out and get a copy every now and then yeah. in the mid-90s. I did get one randomly around like I like those books that they did uh, about the systems. What, so you, like the Amiga Gamer. book, they had yeah. the Mega Drive book, and they had like the annuals as well. Yeah. I like those ones. Well, they're I, more, I do buy those. They're yeah. more like books really, aren't they, than yeah. like news magazines. But I mean, I, I'm surprised that there is any market for a current-gen console magazine on the high street. I'm like, because... That it moves so fast, technology now, and it seems, if anything, a magazine about technology is going to be the the, the least viable thing. And to the have stuff on, that they'd be showing would be like reviewing yeah. the latest games, which you could just go onto the store and do now anyway, and yeah. see a preview of it or or see it on YouTube. So yeah. Well, if you want to look at something like you know, like maybe the new Call of Duty game, are you going to wait a month to read it in the magazine, or will you look the day after at a YouTube video? Yeah. Or IGN or something like that. You know what I mean? So I think props to Future Publishing for keeping it going 20 years after the TV show. That is pretty impressive. That is epic. Yeah. You know, and it must have been profitable still for yeah. that long, you know. Yeah. And it shows how much of a legacy that TV show holds. I think the Bad Influence magazine lasted two issues. So there <laughs> you go, it's, it's outlived that. Now let's talk about something you were looking at. Um, I'd little play with it as well, actually, at Play Expo in Blackpool. A portable Spectrum Next. Yeah, so this is really cool. If anybody uh, knows what the Spectrum Next is, it's kind of continuation of the Spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it's it's all featuring new technology, and uh, it's on a kind of custom board. Very nice. We've seen the board before um, by itself, haven't we? I've seen it running now for about three years. Yeah. Whenever I see Jim Bagley, he's got one. Jim's like, always in, got one. In yeah. Jim Bagley's bag. Yeah, all and, sorts and of yet it. again, Jim had something in his bag <laughs> to, this year. A magic sack. Yeah, and he pulled out uh, kind of the case. Yeah. You know, the case that's been designed for the Spectrum Next, it looks absolutely beautiful. Didn't have any keys on it yet. Didn't have the motherboard in there. Had the official box as well, mm-hmm. which looked really nice. And uh, he also had the little adapters at the back. Now, these adapters are kind of for all your different accessories. So your Spectrum thermal printer, yeah. uh, your, your weird joystick <laughs> ports. Just, and all just of this. what I miss when I'm on an airplane or something. I wish I had that thermal <laughs> printer with me. That's it. But then he also pulled out this amazing little thing. Now, this is nothing to do with the official Spectrum Next Kickstarter or the Spectrum Next team. It's a completely separate handheld, and it's been made by a guy called Dan Birch, and he's got a little blog on it on Dorchester 3D. And he basically said, this is this is crazy. Like He said he received the Spectrum Next board, but he looked into it so deeply he was able to reproduce the board on a smaller footprint already. <laughs> it's not even out yet. And this guy's made a mini version of the board. And then he's put it in this beautiful case. Yeah. And you had a go. What did you think of it, Dan? I, I loved it. I thought it was really good. When he handed it to me, because we'd been there and um, Sarah, Octavius Kitten, yeah. she sat down when Jim Bagley did a video between one of our talks. And we got back in there and, like, there's all this stuff on the table. You chatting to Jim. And then he handed me this thing that looked a bit like like a big calculator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, and it had the, the Sinclair logo at the top and the, the rainbow stripes. And 
the keys and stuff on this one actually worked. Oh, yeah, and they're also yeah. micro-switched, so it's got a full QWERTY keyboard on there, yeah. and each one has a micro-switch, so it's like, boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. It's really satisfying to press. Great-fitting little D-pad on it as well. Oh, yeah. And I said to him, I said, does it actually work? And he went, press that button on the top. Loaded up, got the, the Spectrum intro screen, then a massive list of ROMs and games and yeah. tape images and all that. So, yeah, I was, I was playing Jet Set Willy on it within about a minute. <laughs> and, the, and, and the screen's very clear as well. Beautiful. It's very really nice. nice. And this has kind of just been made from a... If you look at his blog, it's been made from a domestic kind of screen that he's bought and he's just <laughs> re, re-hooked it up. So... If you want to create one of these yourself, I'm sure this uh, guide will help you a little bit. But first, we need to wait for the Spectrum Next to come out, don't we? So. <laughs> well, it's even got like a headphone jack in there as well, a built-in speaker. Uh, I also, it's got like a D-pad on it, but also some like circular D-pads that are a bit like the controller on the Switch or, or the DS. Oh, look, well, he's actually saying the DS D-pad. But is that what it assemblies, is? Yeah. yeah, so that's why it's so nice. I thought it felt very <laughs> familiar. And also, one person did point out that it's got um, coloured buttons on there as well. That are not hand painted. Yeah, so. yeah. So uh, it's it's really well done, and you know it, it's three D printed. But yeah. I didn't think it looked three D printed to me. It didn't have, you know, when you get those three D printed things that have thousands of little lines on no, them no, or something. It, no. it, it looks quite smooth. The thing is about the Spectrum community, everyone kind of got a bit disappointed with the Vega Plus. Yeah, so, that's burned a lot of people, hasn't it? I so. think, you know, there's obviously been a demand for a, a handheld, and I think this thing looks, you know, it, you could get those manufactured as it is now. It looks yeah, I, I guess it's a one-off prototype, but yeah. they maybe do something in the future. The best thing I saw about it was Bagley said to me, oh, I've had to lug these things around, now I can just code on the train. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I love that, though. He's nicknaming it the Specky X for now, so oh, nice. uh, we'll keep an eye on that. And if you want to find out more, uh, along with all the other stories we'll talk about, you'll find those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, while we're talking about systems that we were celebrating at Play Expo over the weekend, you did mention this. We had a big Sega Dreamcast anniversary special on Sunday morning with the lads from our Dreamcast Junkyard. Yeah, we also had a Sobe Tech doing like the coolest Dreamcast display that I've ever seen. There were models there that I've only heard of in distant magazines, <laughs> like the Dreamcast, which was a portable Dreamcast. Was that like a development unit? No, it was actually a little company that tried to oh, go yeah, out yeah. and make their own version and then got sued. Yeah. <laughs> so there's only a few of them. And then there was like the Diver's Helmet, which yeah. is a built-in Dreamcast TV. A big CRT, isn't it? Blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was a real celebration of all things Dreamcast. Well, I saw Quan actually on Facebook yeah. going through his like archive going, hmm, what shall I bring along to Play Expo this week? And I was like, oh my God, he's got one of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His you know, archive like a, was like drawer. Even like a PSX and stuff he had, didn't he? Yeah, like, PSX, yeah. Two versions. Virtual Boys linked together so you could play uh, Street Fighter between them. <laughs> but maybe you're thinking, oh, I'd love to play Dreamcast games on the train or a plane or at work on a little handheld. Wouldn't that be nice? Because, I mean, the Dreamcast is actually quite a hard system to emulate. Yeah, and kind of a lot of versions that get ported as well with stuff like Crazy Taxi or whatever. Yeah. It would be like the PC version mm. that will be ported over. Um, well, we're talking about this because Sega have actually talked about uh, bringing Dreamcast games to the Switch. Now, at the moment, apparently at the moment, they're working on a way to emulate the Dreamcast on the Switch, and apparently it's very close to being completed. That's all we know so far. I mean, they haven't said, like, yeah, we're going to put all of the the catalogue out on the Switch. They haven't said anything like that. But, I mean, there must be a reason why they're working on it. Yeah, so uh, Sega's uh, Nakoi Hori... Well attempted. Uh, I've said that right, <laughs> yeah. It says uh, that they're getting close uh, to... 
Dreamcast games working on the system via emulation. Now, I think this is really cool because Dreamcast's like fun titles, you remember mm. Crazy Taxi, but also stuff like Choo Choo Rocket and Power yeah. Stone and Virtual Tennis, all of these kind of games really fit well with the Switch. Samba the Amigo? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Imagine if you could use your Switch controllers yeah. as maracas. That would be wicked. <laughs> and Fancy Star Online, Jet Set Radio as well, another massive game yeah. on there. And yeah, I, I think you're right there because even though the Dreamcast is generally considered a bit of a failure in terms of commercial sales, only because it got you know its butt handed to it by the PS2, really. But there are a lot of people now who maybe didn't own a Dreamcast back then but they read about all these great games and they see the reputation that the Dreamcast got and would actually like to try a game or try the catalogue without actually going out and forking out for the hardware. Yeah, and there was a bit of a crossover, so they had kind of like some Dreamcast games later. The second part would come out on the PlayStation 2 and stuff, so maybe yeah. people would want to go back and play the first part, you know. Yeah, although I've got to say... Sega Bass Fishing, that never came out on, uh, on the PS. So. Oh, f- fishing with your Switch, <laughs> that's what you need next. What if, if they're releasing an adapter where you could plug like, you know, your, your fishing rod yeah, in there? You, yeah. you put the Switch on the floor <laughs> and then each of you hold the little Joy-Cons. <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be done, come yeah. on, I've got to get that on there. Or um, what was the other one? Seaman. <laughs> Seaman, yeah. yeah, just shout into your Switch. Yeah, that was a really, really bizarre game. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's cool, though, I mean, we've talked about it on the show before. You know, the Sega Ages series that they've done, it's always like, how many times can we buy the same Mega Drive games over and over again? It's true, because I had the Sega Ages on my Steam, but there was a really cool thing that I never actually knew. I had my VR headset on. I was just started up Sega Ages by accident. Like, just, you know, misclicked. And then suddenly I was put into a 90s bedroom, and I was like, God, they've added VR support. Yeah, it's really cool. You can't move around the room. But you can like look around it in in virtual reality. I was like, that's pretty good. Imagine Sonic the Hedgehog in three in three D in virtual reality. Yeah. yeah, rolling through your room. Yeah, that'd be good. But I mean, yeah, there is more to Sega than the Mega Drive. So I think it is cool if they're going to get you know some titles that came out after the Mega Drive. Yeah, some, games some, some and, older IPs as well, Panzer Dragoon and yeah, stuff like that. It'd be, be awesome. good to see it. I mean, a lot, a lot of gamers, you know, they read about them, they see them on videos, but they haven't actually played them themselves or yeah. they try and emulate them. But it's never the same, is it? So. That's really cool. We'll keep an eye on that and keep you updated. And before we get into the interview with Jeff Minter, then let's talk about the the floppy tron because it has been Halloween this week. Yeah, so I'm, there's another name I'm going to try and say: Polish engineer Pawel Zadrosniak. <laughs> He's known around the world now for building the floppy tron. Okay, and uh, the floppotron is a instrument that kind of collects different devices together. So we've seen these floppy disk players before, where you have like a couple of floppy disks going playing Star Wars or something like that. This is on a whole new level. So what he's done is he's built this orchestra using floppy disk drives, uh, motors and melodic scanners. (laughs) He's also added a smoke machine in there for effects. But what it can do is he can pump MIDI into this and it gets converted like on the fly and plays any tune. So any MIDI tune he can play. Well, let's look at this now. I mean... It's not just a couple of floppy disk drives. We're probably talking a wall of about 50 drives all working together. Yeah, and there's about six hard drives there as well with the heads. So listen. Now that is a drive seeking for info. That's a scanner. (laughs) I think it's got a nice aesthetic. And that click. Click, click, click. That is floppy. No, that is hard disk heads banging against the side of the yeah. platter. <laughs> that, 
must take ages to make that. Oh, God, yeah. I, I, I could imagine, like, you know, this is MIDI. Mm. Imagine if someone did one, like, with an even higher f future format. You know, it could be even crazier, like a full orchestra. You know, I just thought... A woodwind section and everything. I've got the smoke machine going off now. <laughs> That's cool. You know, I just thought, though, a lot of those kind of mid-90s PC games used MIDI for their sound, didn't they? Yeah. You get like the Monkey Island soundtrack playing the game and all this. Well, that's it. Now, now he's converted it to MIDI. He could put anything. Asus bass, you know, oh, all of that. Oh, my God. I, I so want to see that in person. But again, that is why I love the retro gaming and retro computer community. Who else would do that? Right. <laughs> you know, I, need, I need two of them now, yeah. and I need to try and mix them together, DJ yeah. style. <laughs> that would yeah, be a setup. Good luck getting that in your flight case. Yeah. <laughs> so if you do want to watch a full video, you'll find that and everything else, of course, in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right, I think that's enough from us. Shall we hear from a legend? Recorded live at Play Expo in Blackpool last weekend. From Llamasoft, we bring you Jeff Minter. needs no introduction. Please give a warm welcome to the legend that is Jeff Minter. Thank you. Thanks. What kind of initially got you into games and computers? Um, really, uh, I mean, the first time I ever played a video game, I suppose, was when my brother bought home a Pinatone, uh, one of those Binatone, you know, the bright orange Pong machines. He brought one of those back and we played that on the telly. And, of course, I went to uh, the local fun fair when it came and they had Space Invaders in there and I'd heard in the news about this game called Space Invaders that was, uh, that was eating up all the coins in Japan. Um, and so I got into playing that. I was still in my first ever game. I scored 470 points. I can still remember my score. But at that stage, I mean, there was no idea of this being anything that, that you could do yourself. They were just things that were manufactured somehow. Elves made them or something. And um, I enjoyed them, but I didn't, didn't cross my mind that it could be anything that I could do. Uh, and then one day I was in sixth form college and I happened to go into the wrong room and there was a guy sat in front of this thing which looked like a weird calculator typewriter with a, uh, a, a black and white portable telly stuck on top. And he was recognising me playing a game and uh, I went out to say, oh, yeah, how does that work? How do you get to play video games on this thing? And he said, oh, he said, I typed it in. And it was like that moment, at that moment, my life changed. I think it was like, what you can you can you can type stuff into that thing, and it makes games. How the hell do you do that? And he said, well, there's this language called BASIC, and you learn this language called BASIC, and then you can make the computer do stuff. And so I went to the immediately to the sixth form college library and found a book on BASIC and got it out. Took it home that night. And my brother at the time was working at the AA in Basingstoke, and he had a, one of these TI fancy TI programmable calculators. And he had a little uh, book of programs for that thing. And I had this book on BASIC. And I hadn't programmed in either of these things before, but I sat down and studied both and kind of, kind of worked out what I thought would be a working biorhythm program, um, which I wrote down in biro on paper. And I went into college early the next morning and I uh, typed it in. It didn't work. Uh, but then the guy who I'd seen the day before came in and he helped me out and showed me what I was doing wrong. And we got this thing working. And that was the start of it, really. Then we, you know, I, I learned a bit more coding, and I learned enough to start moving things around on the screen. And then there were like three or four other guys who were interested, and we all started making little games for each other. And this was back in 1979. But well, you did um, titles for the ZX80 as well. Was that the first machine you personally owned? Yeah, I mean, when the, when the ZX80 was announced, because I mean, uh, the Commodore Pet at the time cost about six or 700 quid. 
And I, by then I was hopelessly addicted to, to programming. I mean, I was spending every, I was going to college early and spend you know, an hour before college started programming. I'd stay late until the cleaners kicked me out. I desperately wanted a machine of my own, but I couldn't afford anything. And then Uncle Clive announced the ZX80, and I thought, oh, well, actually, that's something I could possibly save up and buy only 100 quid. And um, eventually I did manage to save up, and I, uh, my ZX80 actually arrived on the same day as my A-level results. And uh, one of those things had more influence on my life than the other. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the uh, first title you started working on? Well, I did a bunch of, of, of little games. I, did, I, I, the, the, I guess the first one which anybody would recognise me, uh, I did a version of Deflex. Uh, I did that for like the 1K ZX80, the 1K ZX81, and went up to one of the ZX microfairs. I had a handful of these little games and uh, got chatting to a guy on the DKtronics stand where they, had, they were selling memory expansions and keyboards and um, showed him these little games I, I did. And he said, oh, you know, do you want a 16K RAM pack? And I said, well, yeah, but I can't afford one. He said, oh, no, have one and go away and make some games and, uh, and he'd sell the games. And I came back from there absolutely gobsmacked the fact that I could get 50 quid's worth of hardware just by talking to this guy and showing a few games. It's like, hey, maybe this is worth pursuing. Did you, your mum help you with publishing these early games? Oh yeah, my mum helped out a lot because uh, you know I I I I'll be the first to admit I haven't got a business head on my shoulders, and my mum in her, her long life had worked on various you know, worked with various business people and worked as a secretary worked and knew a lot of the ins and outs of how all that worked. So I mean, my family in general were extremely supportive. My mum and dad, I mean, none of this would have taken place without uh, my mum and dad helping out hugely, leaving me just to get on with the coding. So uh, you mentioned Space Invaders. Are we also a fan of Defender and oh, all of these classic titles? Oh, 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 Defender. Defender was, it was just, it was another one of those revelation points in my life. I can remember where I was. I'd been down to visit my gran. I was on Southampton Common. And there was a, a travelling fun fair at Southampton Common. And they had an arcade tent. And I, wa I walked up to the arcade tent and there was this one game to one side outside the entrance, it, was a, it must have been new then, they had it outside because they were showing it off and there was one lad playing and I started to watch him play and just the explosions blew me away, the fact like, yeah, ar arcade game explosions up to that point had just been like a little like zap sprite like in Space Invaders, this thing when he was shooting things bits were flying all over the screen and when he died there was this massive cloud of explosion pixels and I was like wow what the hell is that and so as soon as he finished playing, I had to have a go. And of course, Defender being Defender, it kicked my ass most severely. But then I got into the sound effects and the explosions. And even though I was losing 10p after 10p, I was enjoying every minute. And I walked away from there like an hour later, skint, walked back to my grand's place. And I was just thinking, that was brilliant. I hope one day I can design games as good as that, because that was amazing. I didn't know at the time, but of course, it's, it was Eugene Jarvis. And, and his games went on to become probably the major influence on my own game design style, his stuff is excellent and he's my hero to this day. Well you did kind of your own version of Defender for the VIC-20 didn't you? Yes, it was rubbish. Uh, it had like a, a spaceship the size of a bus, it had chunky character scrolling, it had bugs. It, uh, it, it, amazingly enough it did, it did quite well, it even got uh, turned into a cartridge and sold in America but it was a bit rubbish. Uh, you were also using CompuNet quite early on weren't you and uh, were you on BBSs as well? Um, I wasn't really on BBSs that much, but CompuNet I was on all the time. 
uh, when they were first set, set, setting it up, I remember the, the organiser, Nick Green, I think, one of the guys behind it. Um, actually, it was quite memorable. I remember, <laughs> I remember going around his place in London. He invited me out to have a chat about it. And uh, she did a walk through the door. He said, hi, Jeff. How you doing? We're about to turn on with some really amazing hash oil. Do you want some? I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a nice chat. I left this place completely blasted. <laughs> Uh, but no, Confidate was great. Uh, and I spent many, many hours. Like, I'd always yeah, it'd be like lasting at night. Uh, you'd go to the pub, come back from the pub, get on Confidate, stay on Confidate until it closed at about like two or three in the morning. I can't remember. And there was quite a little community on there, people, and you'd send each other little demos and graphics and have, and chats and stuff. It was really good. Must have really felt like a close knit community then, that kind of pre-internet era. Yeah, it was, and it was nice to be able to hook up with people who were all over the country. I mean, uh, also other famous names would come on there, like Tony Crowder would be on there, and various other uh, you know, faces from the biz would be on there. So yeah, it was it was nice. It was uh, a bit like the internet, as you say, but a bit like the net before the net, really. I think it's fair to say you've got a bit of a, a llama fetish. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that all start then? Oh God, I mean, I'd actually, I mean. I've just, uh, when I was at school, I always had a thing for being into camels. I love camels because they're just such weird creatures. And um, I, I, was, I was known for my love of camels when I, when I, even when I was just in secondary school. And llamas, I'd, I'd, I'd never really heard of the South American camelids. And I think there was a Time Life book my mum had about South America. And there were some illustrations in there. There was a picture of a llama. I thought, oh, that looks even weirder than camels. It was a really nice-looking, weird beast. And so that was kind of in my mind. One day, I'd been working on some VIC-20 stuff, and I was just sat at home. I'd, 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 I'd made a little character editor. I could put together multiple characters and make little logos. And I was doodling in there, and I doodled a llama. And then underneath, I just did llama soft. Ah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> is that where llama soft started then, is that? Yeah, that, that, was, that was the inception point of llama soft. I mean, at that point, I'd been publishing some games through other people and had not necessarily had the best experience. There were a few sharks around in those days. And so I'd been inclining towards the idea of, of breaking off and do, doing stuff on my own anyway. I hadn't really thought of a corporate identity. And so, yeah, that, that was the, the point at which Lamasoft came to be. Well, how did you go about kind of planning a game and uh, why did you decide to make a game? Did you get an inspiration from something or is it just a fresh idea? Uh, I mean, sometimes, obviously, I'm inspired by other games. If you look at half the stuff I did for the Monitor Project, you know, inspired by Star Force, inspired by this, inspired by that. I mean, there are certain games I like which make me feel a, a certain way, and I want to see if I can con uh, construct something which makes me feel like that, or maybe even better. Um, these days, it's all about a feeling. I want to put people into what they call the zone. There's a place I like to be when I'm playing a game where you feel really comfortable and you're settled in, and it can feel like the world's exploding all around you, but it's actually quite chilled out and nice. And I want to take people to that space, and I want, them, I want, to, I want to hold them there, and I want, I want them to enjoy the experience. I mean, one of the things, if you look at a lot of modern games, watch YouTube, watch the, the, the Gamer Rage YouTube things. They're quite funny, people getting upset and smashing their headsets and smashing their keyboards open in their face. And I don't want my games to ever make people feel like that. I want people to come off playing my game, even if you don't get your high score, even if at the end of the day it says game over. I want you to come off with a smile on your face because you've enjoyed the journey. And everything I do now, I want people to feel like that. And I'm very pleased to hear that a lot of people feel that way with Polybius. With Polybius, it's, at the end of it, it's like, oh, one more go, come on. And before you know it, you've been on for about six hours. 
yeah, and I just I just find it very very chilling, and and I sometimes in the morning when I was working on Polybius, I could wake up and I could maybe if I'd been on the beers the night before, be a, be a bit hungover, not really feel ready for work, feel a bit groggy. And then five minutes in there, and you come out sort of right-eyed and bushy-tailed. You're like, hey, <laughs> I feel great now. <laughs> well, Attack of the Mutant Camels and Revenge of the Mutant Camels were two of your biggest games in the 80s. What inspired those, and where did those ideas come from? Uh, well, I mean, Attack of the Mutant Camels, the inspiration for that is... Uh, well, it's basically the uh, Empire Strikes Back game by Parker Brothers on the VCS, uh, which I'd played in a computer shop in Winchester. And I'd quite liked it, but I, mean, I hadn't thought particularly that I was going to do a version of it. The reason that came around was because Computer and Video Games did uh, a re review uh, of the Parker Brothers game, and they described the walkers as being giant mechanical camels. And as I told you, I'm a big thing for camels from going back to my school days. I thought, oh, well, actually, why not do it with giant camels? That sounds great. And so I did that. That, that was my first game on the Commodore 64. I did that with, with giant camels that looked like two fat men in a camel suit. And the sprite wasn't particularly great. And on the PAL version, the camel's bums would occasionally drop off. Um, but having done that, I mean, I like camels. And this, in, in Attack of the Mutant Camels, the camels were the enemy. So I decided to do a sequel game where I inv invented this convoluted backstory where the camels were, in fact, had been abducted from Earth by the Zyaxians and brainwashed and uh, with the strength of a herd of 10,000 mutant metagoats on back on planet Earth who managed to reprogram the camels and get them to, to rebel against their oppressors so then the camels could be the heroes. Uh, so yeah, that arose from there really. Well, you also worked on the Conix multi-system. I did. Uh, yeah, what, what's the story there? Um, well, I mean, the Conics were touting this thing around as being like the, 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 uh, an interesting new console to work on. Uh, it sounded interesting. I thought, I, I, at that point, I don't think I'd ever worked on a console before, and I thought I'd quite like to go have a go at working on a console. Uh, the display at the time was, was more advanced than what I was used to. It had 256 colours, which was a complete luxury back then. You had to buy into it, though. I remember I spent about 4,000 4, quid on dev kit and tools and bits and pieces and a PC to run them on, and got going on it. And it wasn't a bad system, and... I got, I got a game about 70% completed on it. And then we were supposed to be going to this show in London where Conix was supposed to show up. It was getting close to the system's launch and we were, all of us developers who were working on games were going to be able to demonstrate our stuff on their stand and we got to the show and nobody was there. <laughs> it was like, oh dear. <laughs> and that so was the end of that. Well, they got really close, didn't they, to releasing it? They were really like TV adverts and stuff I remember seeing. Yeah, I mean, it, th th so this was supposed to be the pre-launch show, basically, where they, everybody was, was going to get to show off what, what they had for launch, and it, there was just nobody there. What was the system like to work on, though? I mean, was it very technically advanced for the time? It was, yeah, it was um, an 8086, if I recall. I think later versions, they tried to upgrade it to an 8286, but the one I was on was an 8086. Uh, and it had a blitter that could do line draw and move chunks around reasonably quickly. It had this chunky mode display that was quite nice. It had a DSP type sound chip, where so basically you had to write your own sound chip on the DSP, but that was quite interesting to do. I'd never done anything like that before either, so I that, was, that was fun. Um, it could have done with being a bit faster perhaps, but for the stuff I was doing, I'm sure given time I could have made it you know, reasonably fast. It was. I was about 70% there, as I say. Actually, what was the game then you were working on? Uh, it was Attack of the Mutant Camels 89. 
And it was nice. I had, I had a friend of mine, um, an artist friend of mine, did these nice, you know, much nicer camels than my two fat men in a camel suit. And um, I did, they were, you could do lovely uh, you know, uh, raster horizons and stuff. It looked pretty good. Actually, you can still play the game now. I thought it was lost and gone forever. But um, uh, one of the guys working on the, an emulator for the Konix actually found an old disc, a demo disc, which must have been sensibly down there. It's, it's not the, the latest version of the game. It's about version 0.4. But you can actually play it. And one of the nice things in it as well, which is something I would like, quite like to return to one day, I was ex experimenting with fractal music. And so you had these fractal tunes that were playing all the time uh, 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 as you were playing. And like it would play, it would, it would make, um, it would play in a major key while you were doing well, and then when you crashed it would play in a minor key for a little while. It was fun, and I would quite like to, to, to do that kind of stuff again. Well, you uh, had a strong relationship with Atari, and you worked with the Jaguar as well. So w what did you think of that system? The Jaguar is actually pretty cool. I know it, it, it gets the piss taken out of it because of the whole 64-bit thing. Um, but in truth, some parts of it were 64-bit. Some parts of it were 16-bit. I mean, it has a 68K in, obviously. Some parts were 32-bit. Tom and Jerry, the custom chips, were effectively 32-bit wrist chips. But parts of the video hardware were actually programmed in 64-bit. You know, they were 64-bit uh, um, architecture. So, yes, in truth, it was a hybrid of all these things. But marketing being marketing, just banged on 64-bit, 64-bit, 64-bit. And it was all too easy to, to take the piss out of that. And in the end, it did deserve the piss taken out of it for that. But, I mean, that's the difference between, like, marketing and, and hardware designers and programmers. We don't do things like that, and they do. <laughs> I guess the architecture as well was quite different for the time, wasn't it? And a lot of people couldn't get their head around it. Yeah, I mean, it was actually pretty nice. I mean, you had an object list processor, which was great for doing sprite-based stuff, but all the real cleverness was in the blitter, which, again, could do line draw. But, and you could do polygon draw. You could do actually do garage-shaded polygon draw, which was a big deal back then. Nothing was really doing that. But it was quite complicated because you, you couldn't just, like, set up a triangle and say, like, draw a triangle. You actually had to walk down the sides of the triangle using the, the uh, uh, Tom chip to calculate the offsets and set up that way. Um, so, yeah, it was, I mean, when I first started doing Tempest 2000, I thought at first I'd do it all in, in vector because I didn't really know how to do polygons using, using, using the chip. But um, when I sent that out to my producer, I said, yeah, that's all well and good, but we want it to look nicer, so make it solid. And at first I resisted that, uh, but then I actually knuckled under and, and taught myself how to actually do that. And when it started to go solid, I, I agreed with him, it did look much better. Uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a tale to tell behind that. When the, um, the Jaguar launch party happened in New York, um, I, w I was invited out there to the launch party. It was very nice of them. And um, it was quite a nice sort of do and quite boozy towards the end. And uh, at one point, I bumped into John Matheson, one of the, the, the chief system architects of the Jaguar, and I was talking to him. And he gave me a right dressing down. He told me that he'd seen Tempest 2000, he thought it was crap. <laughs> he said, "He said it's not going to be a major title for Atari. It's only a make-weight title." And he thought, "I hadn't exercised any of the Jaguar at all, really, to make it." And um, of course, later on, he had to eat his words. Uh, well, now that's often regarded as like the best game on the system, isn't it? Uh, yeah, one of them. I, I, might, I might say that AVP is probably a better game, but. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it did well on the system. And anyway, me and John became friends after that. <laughs> so well, even the soundtrack for that came out on CD, didn't it? Had its own album release. Yeah, I mean, the soundtrack was, was amazing. I mean, the soundtrack actually blew me away because, um, I mean, 
For ages, I, was, I, I didn't have any music while I was working on it. And then when I got in touch with the audio guys and they said, you know, what kind of tunes do you want? I basically made a, just a, a, a tape of the tunes that I was listening to while I was developing it and sent them that and said, make some of this kind of like this. And then you know, a few weeks passed and they sent me down a tape and said, well, here's a tape what we've got so far. We need another week or so to finish off the player so you can actually put it in the Jaguar, but here's the music. And I played this tape and it was, I was like, wow. Uh, I, I had to ring them up. I said, look, you sent me this tape. Is this really what it's going to sound like on the Jaguar or is this it coming off a bunch of synths? And they said, no, 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 this is really what's going to sound like on the Jaguar. Sure enough, a couple of weeks later, they sent me, sent me down the drivers and everything. I plugged it into the game and it, I was like, this is awesome. This is going to be brilliant. Because over I mean, the Tempest 2000, the music is half the game. It really is. And I was just so, so impressed with the Magitech and what they did with that, with that, with that audio. It's fantastic stuff. But you also did Defender 2000 as well, didn't you? So yeah, yeah. What did, what did you want to improve over the original with that game? Then? Well, I mean, with Defender 2000, uh, it didn't really go in the way I wanted it to go. Um, I wanted to keep the graphics small. I wanted to do a lot of, you know, a lot of Eugene-style explosions, because I, I figured the game deserved, being as it was Eugene's game. Um, but by that stage, I was actually living in America, and I was an employee of Atari. And they wanted at first the game to be on CD-ROM, and they wanted all these like hand-drawn sprite parallax layers and big ships and exactly the kind of stuff that you don't want in Defender. And so it ended up being much bigger and chunkier and and less psychedelic than I wanted it to be. And so yeah, it didn't really go in the direction that. that I, oh yeah, I'm still I'm happy enough with it, but. It's not such a good game as Tempest 2000 was. And already playing classic mode if I'm playing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Classic mode. Uh, there's a classic mode and there's a little psychedelic mode that I started working. That was more or less the direction I started to go in before they shoved me off that. So that little psychedelic mode is kind of the stub of the direction I was going to go. Uh, and the big spritey, scrolly thing was that's all them making a mistake, in my opinion. Well, I have, you know, one of the rare working Atari Jaguar CDs. Ah, yes. Um, not many of them around these days. Yeah. But you did the virtual light machine for that as well. So how did you get that job and what was the idea there? Um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd hooked up with a couple of guys from Inmos, the, oh, the transputer people. They'd seen some of the, the light synth work I'd done on the ST, stuff like Color Space and Tripatron. And um, we got together and we, we formed this entity called the Virtual Light Company and we, we, we made a transputer-based... Um, interactive and audio-driven light synthesizer, which was never commercially sold, but which was deployed at raves and things like I think Prince even used it once, and The Shaman used it once in, in, in one of their shows. Um, and so we'd been working on that, and at the same time I'd been doing work on Tempest 2000. Um, one of the techniques I, I kind of stumbled across on the Jaguar of Tempest 2000 was the whole thing of video feedback. And I got that going, and that was another case of like losing a day or so, just fiddling with the controls, going, whoa, this is fantastic. <laughs> got to use that somehow. And so I showed this to the Virtual Light guys, and we decided to approach Atari. We knew they were doing the CD-ROM. We decided to approach Atari to go and see, you know, see if they'd be interested in us making something to actually build into the CD-ROM unit, which would do this stuff when you played a CD. So we, we hopped on a plane and went out to California and petitioned, petitioned to to Jack in person, and uh, Mr. Tramiel said yes, and we're like, yay. So yeah, that, that was fun, it was nice doing that. Do you think the Jaguar should have got a lot more life and kind of appreciation? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it would have been nice, but it would have been nice if Atari had been willing to to pay some people. You know, they should have paid more people like me, really, to come and, and take their, their their classic IP. Uh, they they should still be doing that to this day, to be honest with you. Um, but they just weren't prepared to they weren't prepared to pay very much. I mean, they got Tempest for uh, Tempest 2000 for next to nothing. I mean, really, they got it very, very, very cheaply. Um, and they weren't prepared to to pay people. They expected people to flock to their system. And they weren't prepared to pay people to actually exploit the IP they had. If they'd had like fantastic versions of, you know, of Asteroids 2000 and Star Raiders 2000 and Missile Command 2000 and you know, Centipede 2000 and all the stuff they could have done and should have done and had ready for launch, then I think they would have had a chance to capture that generation who had grown up with the VCS, maybe the 8-bit Atari, um, maybe were still in the market to buy a console. And if they could have got a, a, a toehold there then maybe the Jaguar might have prevailed. Maybe it might have stood a chance. If we, given the 18 months or so it had before the PlayStation came out, maybe it might have had a chance to, to get a toehold. But I mean, Atari, just throughout history, just don't seem to know what they're doing half the time. Yeah. Even more so to this day. <laughs> With the Jaguar, a lot of people kind of just half-assed and did just use a 68K, didn't they? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I suppose they did. I mean, but I mean... To me, half the fun when you're developing something is, is getting into the nitty-gritty of the hardware and trying to get the most out of it. But in this day and age, it must be said, and probably started with the PlayStation because they had such a, a, an excellent development environment that you could write everything in C, you had libraries to do everything, you had hardware that backed it up really well, and you didn't have to do this dancing on the metal that us old-school people used to do. And in a way, th that does make sense, but I kind of miss the, the old school stuff. But yes, to get the best out of the Jaguar, you needed to be a bit old school. Well, you also did um, a game that m many people probably haven't played because it was quite an obscure platform, uh, Tempest 3000. That came out. Anyone know what the, the new one is? You got one, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the new one for people that might not know? And tell us about Tempest 3000. Well, I mean, the new one was um, was founded by a bunch of guys who who spun off from Atari when Atari went up in 1996, and uh, no, I got invited to join them in this company called VM Labs. And the idea was that they would make uh, a, a DVD decoder chip, because at, at that time DVD was just about to come out, and there were various decoder solutions. And they were all hardwired decoders that basically did DVD decode and nothing else. And the idea for VM Labs is that they would make uh, a general purpose processor, or uh, basically it was a, a small array of processors, which could do DVD decoding software, and as a result could then be generally programmable to do other stuff like games, or you know, and they also wanted to do like enhanced DVD effects and movie effects and things like that. And so they produced this thing. It was it actually, the, the, the Nuon chip itself was a minor miracle, it really was. It was a single 54 megahertz chip, and with that chip, with no hardware acceleration, I was able to make a game where I was calculating every single pixel in the same way that you do now with shaders and make a game which could still run at an acceptable, well, mostly acceptable most of the time, some of the time not, but still at a, yeah, a reasonable frame rate, purely in software, in a 54 megahertz chip. The downside to that was you had, in order to do that, you had to, pro, you had to basically you had to parallel program your your, your application, split it over these four CPUs. Each CPU only has like 4K of instruction RAM and 4K of data RAM. So you had to break your, your screen up into chunks. You had to DMA 
a bit of code into the instruction area. You had to DMA a chunk of, uh, uh, of screen memory into the, into the data area. Then you had to work on it, and then you had to DMA it all out. And because there was only 4K of instruction RAM, you had to then have code overlays on top of this. Plus, as well as that parallelism, you had a fine-grained parallelism where you had, if you had to program it in assembler, and you could con construct instruction packets of up to seven sub-instructions per instruction packet. And this, for an assembly programming nerd like me, this was kind of nerd nirvana. This was probably the peak of my assembly programming career. I absolutely loved doing this stuff. It was so satisfying. But it was also really, really quite difficult to do. And I think there were probably only about sort of like five or six people in the world who could actually program the neuron and, 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 and get the most out of it. And that was one of the major problems with it. You, the, the, there was one, one of these processor units which, which, which had a, a cache which enabled you to program it in C, and you could use sort of general purpose libraries which, which um, we'd made, but it was nowhere near as good. Uh, yeah, you could do kind of like Philips CDI level stuff, but you couldn't really do like Tempest 3000 level stuff. So only a few games got made. Most of the games that were made were made in this really simple mode, and only really Tempest was the only one which really was, was made to exploit the full power of the system. It was just too hard for most people to program. I mean, I've, I'm not, I don't mean intellectually, just in terms of time. It took, it took time to do it. I loved it, but it, it, it was not to be. Oh, by the way, the, the assembler on that system, the, the code name for the chip we were developing, it was Merlin. So the assembler was called uh, Low-Level Assembler for Merlin Architecture. So I don't know if you can work out the acronym for that. <laughs> and um, and th th there was another layer of assembler which was supposed to go above that, which did the instruction packing I was talking about for you. So it was slightly abstracted, and that was called Abstract Level Packing Assembler. <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea behind the new one was pretty good, though. I mean, it was kind of like what 3DO tried to do a decade before, really, that it would be a standardized platform where everyone to have a game system built into their DVD player. Um, the idea probably could have took off if um, it was easy to program, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it was a combination of, of it being difficult to program, and also it was, we were about a year late to market, really, by the time we got the bugs in the chip out, uh, and there were other solutions available at that point which were uh, you know, uh, uh, cheaper than we were. And so, although we did get into like, Toshiba and a couple of other players, it never really took off, unfortunately, and that was the end of VM Labs. Well, you went to uh, work on the virtual light machine on the Xbox 360, working with Microsoft. How was that? Um, yeah, that that was that came that was rather a surprise as well. I, I found out at some point that Jay Allard, uh, the guy at, at Microsoft who was behind the Xbox in those days, had actually been a fan of some of the lights and stuff I'd done for years, and had originally tried to contact me. An email must have gone missing or something because I don't remember ever seeing an email from him. Apparently, he tried to contact me to do like some kind of psychedelic sequence for the boot-up sequence of the original Xbox. Um, but obviously I, d I didn't get to do that. But then I think I heard through, through Gary Lydon or something like that that they were interested in, they might be interested in doing um, a light synth um, for the upcoming Xbox 360. And so we put together a demo and went out and showed that to them, of uh, the stuff we could do at the time. Because I'd been working on stuff on the, on the um, GameCube and I had what was effectively a light synth that was designed to do texture generation for a game I was working on for that. And so I adapted that and showed them that. And um, yeah, they said, do the visualizer for the Xbox 360. And I thought, yeah, I'll do this. I tried to get a royalty off them. No, nope, 
No way, you're not getting, you know, not even one P per Xbox, you're not getting that, you're going to get a flat fee and that's it. It's Microsoft haven't got much money, have they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But, I mean, that, that's probably the most widely distributed bit of Larmasoft software ever. So, I couldn't complain. It was just good fun to do and it was, it was a nice light synth, it came out pretty well. I'm a big fan of Polybius, the game that you made recently. Um, what was, because I mean, that was an urban legend, Polybius, originally, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> what was the story there, then, with using that iconic name and the background on Polybius? Well, I mean, having done TXK and, and got into hot water with Atari, I thought, well, if I base this on an urban legend, nobody's going to be able to actually nail me for it, because it's an urban legend. So, as far as I know, also, other people had done like their own variations of Polybius. I figured it was free for all, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything anybody could sue me over. So I thought, yeah, well, why not? And also, I thought it would be quite interesting to imagine a game, especially as I was doing a VR game, you know, to imagine a game that was kind of psychoactive in the way... That, well, not necessarily in the way that Polybius was supposed to be psychoactive, because Polybius, the arcade game, was supposed to be deleteriously psychoactive. I wanted something that, that could be psychoactive in the opposite direction, that could actually make you feel better rather than make, make you feel brainwashed and worse. Yeah, I mean, the legend was it appeared in some arcade, I can't remember where it was now, in Pittsburgh or something like that, wasn't it? And uh, the kids would get addicted to it, and the men in black would come and check the stats on the machine, and the kids would start to have bad experiences and, uh, and start to feel sick and upset and things like that. And then, then it disappeared completely. And over the years, I think I first heard about it when I was still living in the US, and on the arcade news groups, people would say, oh, I've got a ROM image of Polybius. And of course, you download it, and it wouldn't work in main or any emulator, of course, because it didn't exist. But uh, so this, this legend had been going around for so long. I thought, yeah, well, why, why don't I have my own fun with the legend? It's, yeah, and that's what it was. Do you believe the legend? Uh, I think it's an urban legend, basically. I don't think Polybius actually ever existed, but it, 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 it's, it's a nice story. I, when, I, when, I, when I released, or just before I released Polybius, I made up this, uh, a story which I put on the, on the, the Sony website about how I'd been to Basingstoke and somebody had shown me in a shady sort of a warehouse. Uh, uh, <laughs> they, had a, they had this machine under a sheet and it was revealed to me as being this fantastic Polybius and I started to play and then I blacked out and then I didn't remember anything until <laughs> afterwards. And then, and then the game which I'm making now is the fragmentary memories coming back and I'm just reinterpreting them and that's my Polybius. Well, Tempest 4000 is out now, so uh, what can we expect from that game? Uh, you could expect basically TXK enhanced. Um, I mean, TXK itself started as me wanting to effectively do an updated, definitive version of Tempest 2000. Because I mean, Tempest 2000 is nice, but when I look back on it now, I can see the frame rate gets choppy. And of course, it's done on a fairly low resolution raster without any real alpha effects, so you don't get the nice vector glow. And I thought it would be lovely to do. A modern update, 60 frames a second, really nice looking vectors, lots and lots of particle systems and stuff like that. And so that's what TXK was. And then, of course, there was all that malarkey. And uh, then we actually managed to, to deal with Atari and do an updated version that was even closer to Tempest uh, 2000 than TXK was. But, no, you could expect a nice, smooth Tempest game with lots of levels, lots of music. You've got the original Tempest 2000 soundtrack, you've got the CD version of Tempest 2000 soundtrack, and you've got the TXK soundtrack. Um, you can expect no drop frames. You can expect the frame rate to be absolutely lovely because drop frames are sin against God. Um, so, yeah, if you like Tempest, then hopefully you'll enjoy it. You'll also expect weird release practices from Atari. I don't know why you can't get the physical copy in the UK. People ask about it all the time. I have no idea. Atari are just Atari being a thing to themselves, as they always will be. Um, but hopefully you'll enjoy it.
Well, uh, before we go to questions from the audience, I'll just ask uh, what you're working on now. Um, well, we're working on basically finishing off Minotaur Arcade Volume 1. I'll say if you co come and play it now, you see the games are complete, but we have turned up a few bugs. Uh, just coming here has been a great bug test, actually, because lots of people playing. You get, people, you get to see a lot of edge cases. I've managed to break it myself a couple of times, so we'll go home and fix those. But hopefully we should have the Steam version of that out within about a month and the PS4 version out probably a, a month or two later because PS4 always takes longer because you've got to go through cert. Uh, meanwhile, Giles is also hard at work on the uh, 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 PC port of Polybius. So that, that will also be out hopefully soon. And beyond that, I mean, I'm going to see how Monitor Arcade Volume 1 goes. If that goes well, then maybe I'll do Monitor Arcade Volume 2. If not, then maybe I'll think about doing something else. So we'll see how it goes. Excellent. Well, we'll give you guys a chance to ask some questions to Jeff. Just put your hand up if you've got a question. What a fun talk. Always is. Um, first, uh, one thing that made me laugh at your talk is that you mentioned that CompuNet, they used to switch it off at 2 in the morning. Can I say they ought to do that for the internet? The world <laughs> would be a better... Right, go to bed now, lads. It's 2 o'clock. Enough. Um, and while you're talking about the uh, revisiting Commodore 64 games, Ancipital's a good call. Sheep in Space, all right? Just revisit oh, Sheep in Space. Yeah, actually, sheep, sheep in Space would be handled pretty well by, by the environment. There's some stuff Thank the you. environment does which would be ideal for it. Well, that's a promise, so I'll hold <laughs> you that. Uh, okay, I've got um, uh, uh, two questions. Uh, the first is your games, and I'm going right back as well. Uh, whilst people often use words like, oh, they're surreal, they're actually really British. There's loads of Britishness in your games. I've just been playing Grid Runner, and you know one of the levels name checks Cameron uh, and Corbin, and you often use little British phrases and use British farm animals. My question over the years, I've got two questions, is that um, I wondered if you'd ever had any interesting feedback from people around the world who just don't get it, and I, and I wonder if you'd ever had any pressure to like, you need to un-British this because some people don't get it. And the second one, you've clearly got some gaming heroes. You might be a gaming hero to some people in this room, but you've got your own gaming heroes, particularly Eugene Jarvis and Dave Toyer. They say you should never meet your heroes. Have you ever met your heroes, and how did it go? Um, well, I mean, I've, I am as British as a cup of tea, so th that does tend to, to creep into what I do. I am, I've seen reviews of my stuff in the US where they will mention the British humour, where perhaps they don't get it, but I mean, the only case where I've been egregiously forced to un-British stuff was actually working for working at Atari, where every mention of colour, I had to take the bloody U out. Oh, it, made me, made me, it made me cross. I was not happy. Um, as regards uh, Toira and, and, and Jarvis, I've never met Dave Toira. I pretty much keeps himself to himself these days. Um, I, I know that, that, that apparently he doesn't hate me, which I think is a, a, a reasonable result. Um, I have met Eugene, and Eugene is an absolute gentleman, an absolutely lovely bloke. Uh, it turned out there was a, a, Lama, a guy who was a fan of Lamasoft in the early days, uh, ended up working at Williams, um, a guy called Jake Simpson. And um, I, I was going to a, a, a show in Chicago, and Jake had a word with Eugene and told him that I was uh, a big fan. And Eugene uh, took the time to come out. Uh, he spent uh, a whole afternoon hanging out with me. Uh, he bought me beers. I got uh, pictures of him somewhere playing Tempest 2000. It was a, you know, a wonderful afternoon chatting with him. He got me in to see his latest project, which he was also being uh, displayed behind closed doors there, uh, which was Cruising USA. Um, but no, it, absolute gentleman, absolutely loved it. And, and 
there is a chance that I may get to meet him again uh, beginning of next year, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, where did the idea come from to uh, mix psychedelic graphics with games? Um, well, I'm, uh, I'd been working with the light synth stuff for ages. I mean, I first started with the whole thing of I wanted to do something that was a bit different than games, and I, I started doing this thing called Psychedelia back in 1984, where I was just exploring the idea of, of generating sort of um, symmetric, vis symmetric flowing visuals uh, to be. The idea was that you would actually use the joystick to do this stuff yourself while listening to your favourite music, Pink Floyd. Um, and so I'd done various iterations of that. And so when I was working on Tempest 2000, it just all, it seemed to fit in somehow. As I said, I came up with this, this visual feedback technique using the Jaguar Blitter. And once I saw that, it kind of linked into all the stuff that I've been doing with the with the, 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 the what I used to call light synthesizers. And then when the music came in, and it all sort of fit together so well, that, that whole kind of style just evolved out. I mean, Tempest 2000 was really the start point to it. Um, but it was just a combination of these things coming together at the right time. But having done Tempest 2000, I, I then had a bit of a beer in my bonnet about always wanting to bring together these two sides, the light synth side and the game side, and work them into this sort of wonderful, abstract, psychedelic mishmash. <laughs> well, hello, uh, just wanted to ask, when you said you turned up to the uh, Conix launch party, did it, was there physically just no one there? Um, basically, there was, there was a stand set up at this computer show where Conix was supposed to be, and there was just no equipment on it, and no people there, and it was like, what's going on? <laughs> we thought you were going to be here. And I mean, Lamasoft was there with their own stand, so it wasn't like we just showed up and had nowhere to go. We were actually there, but the, the, the idea was that the developers who had been working on Conix games would be showing off their, their works on Conix's own stand. So I went, uh, you know, went to where they were supposed to be, thinking to see you know, where have they put uh, Attack of the Mutant Camels. And not only was Attack of the Mutant Camels not there, nothing was there. You've done stuff on handheld consoles, on the Vita, and you've done stuff on TV consoles. Have you thought about doing anything on the Nintendo Switch? Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind doing stuff on the Switch. It's, it's certainly a lovely, capable little platform. I think some of the stuff we've done would look really, really nice on there. It's a question of, of finding sort of uh, financial and temporal space in which to do that. At the moment, I mean, the Switch is so popular that I, my main fear in going into it would be like we'd put some stuff on there, it would go into a massive scrolling list of everything else on there and be utterly, utterly lost. Uh, but then, th yeah, that, that, that is the problem with just about every platform these days. But yeah, I mean, certainly we're considering it. Giles has already been thinking about how we'd go about porting the engine to it. So I, I wouldn't rule it out. If we get the chance, we'll, we'll, we'll probably do something on there. Lots of fun, the Switch, as well. It's kind of pick-up-and-play game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, know, I really like the Switch. I mean, I, I think it's a lovely system. But, yeah, hopefully we'll get to do stuff. I Personally, just in terms of, of, of being a game designer, implementing a game, I would love to do it because I think it would look nice. How uh, you going? Um, as an Amiga user, you've mentioned Atari several times in your discussion. I've twitched each time. Um, what's the company Atari like now from when you first met them? How has it, it evolved or changed? Is uh, it's, it's not the same company, basically. I mean, it's not the same people. There's no real continuity between the Atari that I knew and the Atari that exists now. I mean, the Atari that exists now, they basically used to be infograms, didn't they? And they bought the rights to all the Atari titles, and as far as I know, the people at Atari aren't actually developing anything. They're just, like, farming out this IP to various people. 
Um, I mean, even the Atari I knew wasn't the original, original Atari, because I knew Tremiel Atari, which of course is different from um, Bushnell Atari, but there were still some people who had been there since the Bushnell days, so there was a degree of continuity. This new Atari, there's not really any continuity between that and, and where I was. I mean, it's, it's a different company, it owns the name Atari, but it's not really the same entity. What are the Tremils like to deal with? Um, I actually got on really well with them. I know they've got, I, obviously they have got sharp business practices because I mean, some of the stuff that happened to me with Tempest was pretty sharp. Um, for example, I, I, I never knew why Tempest, why, why Tempest X3 was called Tempest X3 and why they changed the gameplay in, in, in ways which I thought were a bit, a bit dubious. I found out years later talking to, I, I had a chat with the programmer online. He said he'd been instructed to make it very slightly different than Tempest 2000 in order to ease the royalty burden. In other words, to cut me out of, the, uh, of the, any royalties which might have arisen from a PlayStation version. Now, somebody at the time must have made that decision, so it probably went up to some of the Tremels. But some of the individual Tremels I got on well with, I mean, uh, in particular Leonard. Leonard was a huge fan of, uh, of the light synth stuff. Uh, when I was at Atari working on the, on the Jaguar VLM, I would sometimes come into the office in the morning and find Leonard playing some music on my CD-ROM and literally dancing around and really, <laughs> really enjoying it. Um, so, yeah, I got on well with Leonard. And, um, e even Jack sort of you know, was, was okay. I, I, I think my best Jack moment was uh, I was invited out to Atari to work on the uh, prototype Jaguar. And uh, they flew me out there, and I ended up in this locked room with the prototype hardware. And they threw the manuals at me and said, "Right, you know, do something." And so I thought, "All right, I'll try and learn my way around and see if I can come up with a few little demos." And I did some demos. And um, at one point, Jack Tremell came by, and I had this demo of some pictures, and they were warping and moving around and stuff. And, uh, and Jack turned around and said, "That's the best thing I've seen on the on the Jaguar so far." And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> Well, please give a big thank you to Jeff Minter. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers.